0: Americans, this is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day.
1: Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute.
0: And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoy today's show, we ask that you subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or Stitcher.
1: Our guest today is... Ramesh Purnuru, who is a senior editor at National Review, a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a columnist for Bloomberg View, and I believe you're a contributing editor as well at National Affairs. So you kind of bestride the conservative policy scape like a colossus.
2: I am doing my best to improve the monthly jobs reports.
1: fantastic so we want to talk about a couple of different topics but first uh, we're going to start with something light and non-controversial which is abortion so there's been a number of big policy or legal moves regarding abortion in the last couple months i think there have been various forms of abortion ban passed i think in five or six states uh maybe ohio missouri georgia alabama Louisiana. I might be missing one? Mississippi. Oh, did Mississippi too? Okay. All right. Yes. Yeah. Well, as goes Alabama, so goes Mississippi. So, and most of these, I believe, are what is known as heartbeat bills, uh, which means that they prohibit abortion after there is a, a heartbeat in the unborn child, which I guess would be around six weeks or something like that. Although some of the, I know at least the Alabama bill, I believe, is a total ban. And this obviously has gotten, there's been a lot of consternation about that. There's, you know, Alyssa Milano has gotten involved. Other things things like that. But there also has been some concern expressed, I believe, from folks on the pro-life side that these laws, you know, whatever the the merits of the law, uh, they might be strategically counterproductive or otherwise problematic. I I believe you've written on this subject. What is your perspective on all of this?
2: So I am very sympathetic to the goals of a lot of this legislation. Um, I think that uh, we need to build an America which um, welcomes unborn children in life and protects them in law. But I do think that we have to be strategically wise about this. And my concern is that this legislation, this type of legislation sets us back politically and possibly legally. A lot of it is designed to make the Supreme Court revisit Roe v. Wade. And not only do I think this type of legislation isn't Capable of forcing the Supreme Court to do that, I think it makes it a little bit less likely that the Supreme Court will revisit that jurisprudence. I think that there is some reason to think that there is some caution on the part of some of the Republican justices, the Republican appointed justices. And if that is true, then just about the last context in which they are going to want to revisit abortion jurisprudence is that of a near total ban on the procedure. At the same time, I think that there were some political benefits that we on the pro-life side would have been able to gain and can gain by highlighting the extremism of the Democratic Party on this issue. As we've seen in states where they're moving legislation, New York has liberalized third trimester abortion. Illinois has just legalized partial birth abortion under state law and has um, reduced conscience rights of objection for pro-lifers. It seems to me that we've got a situation where people on the hard pro-life side, like me, and people on the pro-choice side um, are out of step with public opinion in different ways. And I don't think it's any sort of great breakthrough in political strategy to think that maybe it makes sense... To put the public attention on the places where the other side is out of step with public opinion. Maybe we should have an approach where we say, look, there are serious disagreements among Americans about abortion, but can we at least agree on abortion bans after the 20th week. We can work together on that. Most, though not all, Americans are going to agree on that. And then once we've pocketed that gain, maybe then we can talk about week 19 and then maybe then we can talk about week 18 and so forth. It just seems to me to be the right way to proceed given the political landscape.
1: You're certainly right that the justices have not shown a kind of overriding eagerness to directly revisit Roe v. Wade. I know, for example, just this month, there was a, there was an Indiana law, which was much more targeted. I believe it banned sex-selective abortion, you know, so uh, abortions that were undertaken because of the sex of the child or the race of the child, that sort of thing.
2: And they puzzled on it. They, they refused to take up this case, which I, you know, arguably would have been an easier and more sympathetic case. They used the excuse that there was no circuit court split on that issue, which I suppose is a reason for red states and other circuits to to start legislating on that basis. But if they're not going to take up that issue, uh, it seems to me that they're highly unlikely to take up a full abortion ban. What you'll end up with is district court or maybe appeals courts striking those laws down and then and then they're not getting reviewed. I think that's, that's certainly the
1: case there. I will say, while the Supreme Court, of course, can take or decline to take whatever cases they want. It does seem like given both the number of these laws that have passed and the geographic dispersal so that you're, you know, you're in, I don't know, four or five different circuit courts, you know, obviously they can do what they want, but it it would, be, it would be a little odd for them to just ignore the whole thing. I, you know, I, I don't know if they would be able to do that. My sense of it is, if I were designing kind of a pro-life strategy to get the court to uh, revisit Roe versus Wade, I agree, I probably would not be pursuing a ban like this. Yeah, I think you're probably right. It would be smarter, more sensible to try and find something more tailored. I will say that my impression is that there has been for a long time a lot of kind of pent up energy within the pro-life movement in some of these states where they would, you know, they have the political capacity to pass serious restrictions on abortion, bans on abortion, but they haven't done it because, you know, they, they always say, well, the, you know, the, the votes aren't there in the Supreme court. And now we don't know that the votes are there on the Supreme court. Uh, but with Kavanaugh, it is at least plausible that there could be Five votes to overturn Roe v. Wade, and you know I, I think that's also kind of why we're seeing some of these more extreme laws in the other directions, like in Virginia or New York. Is a lot of folks they're acting almost like Roe v. Wade has been overturned, even though it has not, uh, just because they're, they're they're looking ahead.
2: Well, I do think that the, the Supreme Court's jurisprudence—it's based, you know—it's illegitimate usurpation of policymaking authority in the area of abortion that has now lasted uh, for nearly five decades, has distorted our politics on this issue. And it's distorted it in blue state and red state alike. It was not uncommon to hear people discussing the red state restrictions on abortion in terms of, well, we're not really legislating. We're not really setting policy. We're trying to tee up a case for the Supreme Court. And in the blue states, I think it's distorting it in a different way, which is there's so much mythology around Roe v. Wade. And it's very easy for them to say, well, we're just codifying Roe and have that be interpreted to mean something more moderate than what they're actually doing, which is basically, you know, allowing second and third trimester abortion under uh, under really any circumstances.
1: Yeah, right. I can understand, I think, all, you know, talk about the political side of things. In politics, uh, you want to highlight the issues where you're popular and where your opponents are unpopular. And so, you know, hi- highlighting, you know, the standard democratic position of wanting late-term abortion to not be restricted or whatever, you, you have overwhelming majorities for restricting late-term abortion, whereas you would not have that for early-term abortions. I can't obviously see the political wisdom of that, although it does seem to me that on some level, you know, the American public kind of, they know where the pro-life side of things stand. You know, they know that they want a ban on abortion. Now maybe it makes it more tangible in a way, but if that is the goal of the movement, ultimately, is to be able to get something like that then it's a little hard to, to say, well, no, you can't do it because we've got to focus on more narrow stuff, uh, you know, just in terms of the, the grassroots of things like that, I think.
2: You know, pent up demand, of course, right? I mean, these are wholly legitimate, just laws that courts have not allowed to prevail in democratic contests. Uh, and they've done it for no reason that you can point to in the text or history or original understanding of the Constitution. Of course, people who have been deeply disturbed by abortion in this country and been organizing politically um, to try to change that are frustrated and impatient. Uh, I mean, I think it's a, it's a righteous impatience, but that doesn't make it a wise strategy.
1: So let's talk about something where the pro-life side of things is more popular. Uh, and that is the Hyde amendment the Hyde amendment for folks that don't know it's a long-standing provision that gets put in the budget which how uh, to be technical about this but basically you, you don't have federal funding for you don't have taxpayer funding for abortion through Medicaid or other programs like that and you know this is something that I think has been you know it has to be included in, in the budget every year but basically since the late 1970s this has been a kind of recurring feature of the budget that that is not allowed and I think I looked at some polling on this the other day, and it was basically Republicans and independents were overwhelmingly in favor of this policy, and Democrats were about split, right? So even among Democrats, you know, somewhere in the range of 40 to 44% of folks think, nah, you shouldn't be having taxpayer funding for abortion. And the leading candidate on the Democratic side, Joe Biden, was until 24 hours ago, or 24 hours of this recording, I guess, also supportive of the Hyde Amendment. And then he happened to mention it in public. And and then he, after 40 years of, of support, changed his mind all of a sudden. <laughs> I, you know, what what do you make of that?
2: Well, I mean, it's a testament to the mood of the Democratic Party and how devoted they are to abortion rights. For many years, starting in the 1990s, they spoke of their policy on abortion being that it should be safe, legal, and rare. That was the Bill Clinton formulation. And that was actually in the platform for a while. Uh, More recent platforms have discarded that moderate language. And have had an explicit call um, to get rid of the Hyde Amendment uh, and thus to have taxpayer funding for elective abortion. There was always a kind of coded endorsement of that. They used to just say in the platform that abortion should be a right without regard to the ability to pay, which implies taxpayer funding. But now they've, uh, they've they're a little bit I guess more serious about it. and they're sort of more overtly campaigning for it than they previously had. And I do think that this puts them on the wrong side of public opinion. Uh, I think that uh, that it was Biden's climb down was a gift to the Trump campaign. I do wonder whether it's a case of Democratic elites being a little bit out of touch with their own voters. Um, the polling does suggest that you know two thirds of Democratic voters are in favor of taxpayer funding, but there is that one third. And I guarantee you that one third of Joe Biden's advisors are not in the same place as, uh, as those more moderate um, Democratic voters.
0: If I'm not mistaken, I just saw one of the pieces you wrote where you pointed out that, for instance, David French has been a big supporter of heartbeat bills. And, and you sort of critiqued him saying that, you know, again, it may be a little bit too uh, moving too fast. And it just occurs to me that this is rather amusing. I'm sorry to say that given the topic, but given this whole First Things attack on David French third-wayism, it, it seems that really the uh, uh, the attack probably should have been on uh, Ramesh Panaru, uh third-wayism.
2: Well, don't don't give them any ideas.
1: But <laughs> well, you also, I believe, but just to back up, that First Things founded by Father Richard non John Newhouse, a kind of, you know, traditionally highbrow magazine of political thought from a religious conservative perspective, kind of a pseudo, it's not a Catholic journal, but there's a lot of Catholics that are there. Uh, And there's been a number of different spats recently between folks there and folks at National Review on a a variety of topics. Basically, it's kind of hard to summarize, but I I think the, you know, maybe a general gist is that uh, National Review is not fighting hard enough, uh, in defense of different social conservative issues. Yeah, I don't know. Would that be a fair summary of the allegations anyway?
2: Well, that's, that's sort of one strand of it. It's uh, but you're right. It's hard to summarize. Um, and uh, I'm afraid that's because the original critique that Sarah Bamari made in First Things was kind of rambling and disjointed. You know, I've seen other writers like Ross Douthat and uh, Michael Brandon Doherty trying to give a sympathetic gloss on what... So Rob said, and what these other writers say, I think, makes a lot of sense. Is just not the same thing.
1: So I will uh, just as a shout out from one podcast to another. I just finished listening the the latest episode of National Review's Editors podcast has kind of a, an in depth discussion slash debate between Michael Brendan Doherty and Charlie Cook and and others on these broader issues. And you know, Michael, I think, is more. Sympathetic towards the kind of first things point of view on it, uh, I thought it was very clarifying in that whole debate.
2: So one of the one of the topics taken up that, that Michael has taken up is sort of what conservatives should think about the liberalism of the American founding. Um, you know, the liberalism of, of Locke and of Tocqueville and of Acton, and you know, there is a, there has always been a strain of conservatism that has believed that. That kind of liberalism, even classical liberalism, contained the seeds of, well, social dissolution and, and degeneration, that it promotes a kind of individualism that is subversive of the idea of, of an objective moral order. And what Michael, Brendan Doherty said in National Review yesterday, um, I, although I haven't listened to his podcast, I did read his essay in which he was suggesting that a liberal society of the type that we're talking about. Um, you know, not a, not a progressive or left-wing society, but just, you know, kind of an American founding kind of society, requires for its sustenance a non-liberal culture. It, it is dependent on non- or pre-liberal cultural inheritances. Well, I think that's a perfectly reasonable point, that there's a kind of tension within liberalism that requires us to, uh, to guard against it's potential to become kind of imperialistic, you know, again, to, to connect back to my earlier point, if that's what Amari wanted to say, he could have said it.
1: Right. Yes. Uh, and and, and it, this does get very complicated. Because, you know, both historically and today, I would say that there are different strands of liberalism or type of liberalism that take very different attitudes towards traditional society, religion, that sort of thing. I mean, you think about the differences between the liberalism of the American Revolution versus the French Revolution, or, you know, just liberalism in the Anglo-American tradition versus on the continent, where it really was. I mean, if you look at, you know, the folks, you know, a lot of the continental li- liberals, when they got into power, wh- what did they do? They tried to suppress Catholic schools or, you know, say that priests can't wear priestly garb in public or that sort of thing. So is kind of more hostility, which in America traditionally has not been the case. Uh, you know, there obviously someone like Michael would say, well, there's ominous trends in that direction. But, you know, there has, I think, been at least a historical difference between two things that call themselves liberalism, and they share a lot of uh, at least semantic similarities, but their attitudes have been really different.
2: Right. And, you know, sort of the American understanding of religious liberty has been broader than the Lockean understanding. Locke has this passage where of course he says, you know, of course I'm not talking about tolerating popery. Right. That would obviously be crazy. You know, no no popery and no atheism. But, you know, individuals worshiping God in different ways, that's fine. Well and obviously, you know, we've had a broader understanding of this in the United States really, from the beginning, particularly with respect to what the federal government would be doing. One other way of thinking about it, and and my friend uh, Yuval Levin gets at this in his book on uh, Edmund Burke and and Thomas Paine, is whether you think of a liberal society as being something where, through trial and error, we have discovered certain practices that work uh, and that are conducive to human flourishing, or whether we think that there are sort of Enlightenment principles that we've that we've discovered and now need to sort of ruthlessly and rigidly apply in all areas of life, and you know to describe it that way, of course, is to suggest which side of that um, distinction I'm on.
1: Right, you're on the side of ruthlessness, I, I would assume.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: There's a, any number of areas that we could go and, and talk to you about because you you cover so much. But you just mentioned you've all lived in. And one thing I do want to down the road, I want to get get to talking about him joining AEI. But you also just wrote a piece with him. I think it was just uh, late 2018 on constitutional norms and uh, and I think your your thesis essentially was that there's a lot of violations of constitutional norms that are happening. But one of the things that's happening is that Congress isn't. Playing its traditional role and is just deferring to the to the executive. Would you comment on that just a little bit?
2: Right. So it is. Uh, gosh, was it Bismarck who said that uh, that the turkey's weakness was provocative? Um, I think Congress's weakness is provocative. It uh, has encouraged the executive and judicial branches to seize power, knowing that. Congress is not going to jealously guard its rights. And so as a result, so much of our politics now is over, um, you know, who gets to make appointments to the executive branch and to the judicial branch. And the use of Congress to actually legislate is a secondary consideration. I mean, as you can, as we can see, even before Republicans took the Congress, excuse me, lost the, the, the House when they had at least a nominal majority in the Senate and the majority in the House in 2018, they were basically just processing executive branch and judicial appointments and tax cuts. Well, that was that was in 2017. They, that was it. That was that was it for major legislation from the first unified Republican government in 12 years they just decided that they were done. And sort of interestingly, this gets maybe to a different set of problems. There wasn't really anybody in the conservative universe who was saying that that was a bad thing that uh, that we ought to expect more out of them than that that they ought to be at least trying to do something. No faction of the Republican Party really was uh, was demanding any such activity.
1: Well, they didn't really have a plan uh, other than I guess repeal and replace Obamacare. I mean, it's not like there was a huge pinup list of legislative proposals that they say, hey, we should try and do this.
2: Well, right, that's right. I mean, they there was a conscious decision made during the Obama administration. Uh, by the congressional Republican Party to say, let's create freedom of action for our next presidential nominee by not tying them down to a bunch of policies, which is easier for us since we don't want to do that work anyway. That person will run on a platform and then we'll all do whatever that person wants us to do. Well, there were a number of things that that strategy did not uh, anticipate, let's say, and uh, Donald Trump is is certainly one of them. So you've got a, a, a presidential nominee who runs without the traditional trappings of a policy platform and then surprises everybody by actually winning and presenting them with a challenge of governing that they hadn't expected to face. That, I think, is part of why repeal and replace of Obamacare was such a mess, because the, the work hadn't been done by the congressional party and the work certainly hadn't been done by the presidential candidate. And then all of a sudden they had to sort of come up with something on the fly.
1: Right. But even in, you know, even if you think about issues where Trump, at least in theory, you know, these are his passions, like immigration, building the wall or something like that. There was, I guess, eventually a immigration bill that was put forward, the Cotton-Purdue bill or whatever, but that had detailed stuff in it. But there didn't seem to be much of a concerted effort to do much about that. And it's sort of, uh, you you know, you're talking about how Congress has kind of abdicated authority or whatever uh, to the executive branch. But in part, it almost seemed like when Congress is of the party of the president, they've gotten so used to taking direction from the president or, you know, having do their lead that when you have a president administration like Trump that in a way is kind of hands off in terms of, I mean, both with the tax bill and Obamacare and then just other things He's like, you know, you go do what you want to do. They've lost the ability to act on their own without getting marching orders from the White House. At least that's my impression is that.
2: Yeah. So, this is, so here's a, you know, a more positive way of, of viewing what's happened. For the first time since before the New Deal, you had a Republican Congress and a Republican president where the Republican Congress couldn't take marching orders from the Republican president because he didn't, he wasn't giving them. And so there were two major pieces of legislation that that Congress took up, health care and taxes. And in both cases, it was the congressional party that said those were going to be the two priorities. There was a congressional party that basically decided what the contents of the legislation in both cases was going to be. And Trump was in a way kind of there just to sign it. And so, I mean, I suppose you could, you could say, given that, that's such an unusual situation in the modern world. Congress is really having to redevelop legislative muscles it hasn't had to use for a long time. Maybe the fact that they got one out of two of them is actually a pretty good sign. And this is, there's, there's just going to be a rocky road toward a rebalancing of the branches. But uh, you know, nothing we're seeing right now looks particularly hopeful, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and they, they almost got health care. They almost got it.
2: Did they though? I mean, so the the, the mythology on that is that they came within one vote in the Senate. (laughs) But if you'll remember, they came within one vote in the Senate on what they called skinny repeal, which was basically just – a repeal of the individual mandate. And what they were telling people was, hey, we know there's nothing at the moment that can get a majority in the Senate, but we'll go to conference and we'll come up with something that can get a majority in the Senate. And, every, and you know, 49 people were saying, okay, well, that sounds fine. It just seems to me, if you didn't have something that had a majority, there was no magic that was going to be worked in the conference that got you to 50 votes plus Mike Pence, uh, and that we were, in fact, much further away from actually getting anything done than it looked.
0: With all this conversation going on with uh, First Things and then also... Uh, some of the movement with uh, Tucker Carlson recently talking about the uh, uh, the libertarian zealots that have taken over Congress, which I, I'm not quite sure I follow where that came from. I really find it interesting to have this conversation about the future of conservatism, which happens to be, uh, I believe, that one of your titles at AEI. And AEI just has a, a new president, uh, Robert Doerr, and he quickly hired uh, Yuval Levin. And then also uh, one of my other favorite think tanks... Uh, no disrespect to R Street, is Manhattan Institute. And one of your colleagues, uh, Raihan Salam is moving into the presidency there. So I just kind of want to get your thoughts on where are we sort of as a conservative movement? What do you see that's positive? And maybe maybe with the backdrop of, you know, this recent article by David Brooks, it says that there's a coming GOP apocalypse, that only 12% of millennials identify as conservative. What is the the future of conservatism in your view? And what's the way forward?
2: Well, you know, these sorts of things can't really always be mapped out in advance. You may recall that right after the 2008 election, there were all these stories about Republican Party going extinct and, you know, conservatism having no future, partly again because young people were turning against it. And then, you know, eight years later, you got Republicans in charge of both Houses of Congress, the presidency, most state legislatures, most governorships. That said, I do think that, the Republican Party's demographic core of married white Christians is a declining share of the population. Unless that can be turned around, like more people get married or convert to Christianity, or, uh, then you know, you're know you going to have to make some inroads among other groups. So part of what's going on right now is that President Trump destroyed an old Republican consensus that no longer spoke to most Republican Voters, Let alone most people in the electorate at large, but it didn't really replace it with anything coherent. And that's why I think you're seeing a a fair amount of intellectual ferment and disorientation right now. Part of the problem, though, is that almost any argument that you start about the future direction of conservatism very quickly degenerates into an argument about President Trump himself and his personality, and whether you're for him or you're against him or sort of how much you're for him and how much you're against him, that I think is something that we're going to have to figure out a way as conservatives to overcome, uh, and that might not happen until after the 2020 election where we'll at least know whether he's in office uh, for another four years or not. I think that, uh, well, I'll just say what I, think, what I think could happen, what I think should happen I think we should have a a conservative movement um, that is more focused on the struggles of people without college degrees in this economy than it has been and that is uh, less sanguine about low-skilled immigration uh, and how that will affect the the character of our society that is market-oriented but is trying to figure out ways – to structure markets and uh, limit and reform government in ways that solve the problems that people have today. Uh, and I think it's been a long time since conservatives have engaged in that kind of applied conservatism, coming up with ways where we can apply our philosophy to solve the problems of the day. And if you think about it, You know, much of what we revere as conservatives in the Reagan revolution consisted of exactly that. We've got high inflation. We're going to attack it with tight money. We've got a sluggish economy. We're going to get those 70% tax rates down. Our streets are unsafe. We're going to ramp up imprisonment. We're going to hire more police. These weren't necessarily sort of things you'd always do under all circumstances. They were answers to the challenges of that time. Uh, And I think we need to come up with conservative answers to the challenge of our time today. One place I think that some of the rethinking is going wrong, I think, say, Tucker Carlson gets most of what I've just said in his bones, and that's what he's trying to do. I do think that he's overemphasizing how much trade and immigration are doing uh, economically. That that's, that's way too big a part of the story for him.
1: I would also say, just to tie this back to the the prior conversation. Because one of the things that I think is going, you know, if you talk about like the intra right fights that we were discussing, one of the things that I think is going on in the background that isn't made explicit is we do have this sense that, well, the current coalition of, you know, socially conservative, economically free market conservatism is appealing to a smaller and smaller proportion of the population, especially young people or whatever. And so that needs to be modified somehow. And there is so there's definitely one group of folks who would like to modify that by jettisoning, abandoning or downplaying the kind of socially conservative aspects of it and, and you know, being more libertarian to try and appeal to younger people who are less religious, uh, you know, more diverse, that sort of thing. But at the same time, you have a group of folks, Tucker might be a good example of this, who say, no, 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 the, if you if you look at polling data, the average voter is actually more socially conservative than not but what they are is they're kind of skeptical of of markets and so the thing to do is to adopt more left wing economic views and that's why you get this kind of weird stuff where Tucker in between talking about the you know trade and immigration and identity politics stuff is also endorsing, you know, Elizabeth Warren's economic plans or some, some of the, even the more kookier, you know, like Bernie Sanders wants to ban credit card interest or something, you know, it seems like there's kind of an internal battle of, okay, if the coalition needs to change, which part of it has to go?
2: Yeah. Conservatives have sometimes exaggerated the political strength of the cause of limited government and, you know, social conservatism, I think, is a more powerful uh, political force in our country than sort of, you know, let's shrink the government. You know, that, that's, that's kind of a political abstraction and people are more devoted to, you know, their actual values than they are to that kind of thing. I do think that uh, before you kick anybody out of a coalition, you should, you know, how, if you're going to kick X number of people out of the coalition, you should be a pretty confident that you're going to bring X plus one or more into the coalition at the same time. And I don't know that, uh, I mean, at the moment, the conservative and Republican coalition is uh, is kind of hard to hold together, let alone to bring other people along. Uh, And I'm not sure that anybody's really quite found the way to do that yet.
1: Well, uh, I guess that is something that we'll have to continue to be.
2: Do that in your next podcast. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll have to, we'll have to work on that going forward. So, thank you very much for joining us today.
2: You're welcome. In different ways, and um, hold on a second. Like, I'm sorry about this. I'm gonna have to move. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right.
0: <laughs> but this has all the makings of an Easter egg. Uh, yeah.